From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome to this week's episode. My name is Hannah, and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes of environmental news. This Friday, March 15th, Young people in dozens of countries on every continent will be striking together to bring attention to the climate crisis and the millions of young people who will suffer the consequences of increased global temperatures, rising seas, and extreme weather. Here in Edmonton, the youth climate strike will be held at the Alberta Legislature from 12 to 2 p.m. You can email yegstudentstrike at gmail.com to add your school to the list. Now for this week's story. When you think of an environmentalist, what kind of person do you imagine? Does gender or race or income influence this image? Terra Informer Dylan Hall had the chance to investigate these questions by interviewing Dr. Emily Huddert Kennedy, sociology professor at the University of British Columbia. In the following piece, you will first hear an excerpt of a talk given by Dr. Kennedy in February at the University of Alberta's International Week followed by Dylan's interview. Please welcome Dr. Emily Huddard-Kennedy. Hi, everybody. It's really a pleasure to be here. So for the past 15 years, you might not be as amazed as I was to add that total, I've been studying sustainable consumption. And I've been asking about what motivates people to consume sustainably and what prevents us from doing more um, often that we want to do to be more sustainable. So for two years, I interviewed 64 households about their relationship to the environment. And most studies on sustainable consumption really draws from the choir. So it's talking to people who are passionate about the environment. But with this project, I interviewed a really socioeconomically diverse range of households, so people from very low income to very high income, people in rural and urban communities, um, and people who were politically very right-wing, so really staunch libertarians, and people who were very left-wing, really committed socialists. And one of the things I was really struck by was how virtually everyone is trying to do something to create and sustain a relationship to the environment. Here's some of the patterns that I noticed from those interviews. Um, The lower lower income working class people that I spoke to really oriented their relationship to the environment around waste and waste minimization. Trying to minimize food waste, um, trying to reuse packaging, and even beyond and into their communities, trying to pick up litter and keep their community clean. Rural and conservative households talked about this strong connection to the, to the environment through things like hunting, fishing, hiking, bird watching. And then there were older residents who reminded me a lot of my grandfather who grew up in Edmonton and built solar panels on his roof in the 70s and grew fruit trees in his, his yard and could make, I'm not kidding, like literally anything out of PVC pipe duct tape and rope. And he did this not out of uh, an 
identity as an environmentalist, but out of an ethos of frugality and self-sufficiency. And then in, in addition to those three types, I also talked to really well-educated, politically liberal people who were often in urban areas who talked about their relationship to the environment largely through a consumer angle. And so they talked about buying eco-friendly products, shopping at farmer's markets, using cloth bags at the grocery store, cycling rather than driving, and eating things like organic avocado toast. What I was struck by was that when I asked people what an environmentalist looks like, almost everyone mentioned that image of the avocado toast eating, bicycle riding person as the dominant stereotype that dominates our imagination of what an environmentally committed household looks like. Using evidence from a telephone survey of Alberta households, Harvey Cron and Naomi Krogman and I found that the stereotypical sustainable consumer is more likely to be well-educated and very concerned about the environment. They're also more likely to have a high carbon footprint. You might be interested in why this is the case, this carbon footprint mismatch, and what we suggest in the paper is because well-educated people tend to eventually earn more money, income is really what's driving carbon footprint. And so those well-educated, sustainable consumers also flew a lot and lived in large homes and had vehicles. So the final question I promised that I was gonna answer is whether the sustainable consumer stereotype excludes anyone. In the interview data, there's also evidence to suggest that low-income people and rural people more generally often feel excluded by sustainable consumption. But right now, I want to focus on conservatives. Among conservatives, like liberals, there was a sense that a, an environmentalist or a sustainable consumer was, as Amber says, some uppity woman who eats organic avocado toast. But some people went a little further to say it's not just that it's someone who eats organic avocado toast and that's just fine, but that they felt that that organic avocado toast person was looking down on them. Hannah says, she says, okay, yeah, there's these people who think they're really trying to go green and that her sense is that they look down on her, seeing her as a redneck because she doesn't practice sustainability the way that they do and the way that they value. And Bill, who in his description to me about his love of nature and the outdoors verged on poetry, really bristled at this perception that he doesn't get counted when people think about an environmentalist. He feels like he's got this strong connection to nature that no urban latte sipping avocado toast eating person could ever have. And so he says, why does anyone think of me as an environmentalist? I've shown that this stereotype is not necessarily that effective in terms of driving down, for instance, our greenhouse gas emissions, and that this stereotype seems to eclipse other relationships to the environment. So this is why I argue we have to move past organic avocado toast when we imagine what a sustainable consumer looks like. Already there's so many of our social constructs that divide us. We're divided by nationality, by politics, and increasingly by our approaches to sustainability. But inescapably, we have in common our complete dependence on and our intimate connection to our planet. Thank you. Emily, thank you for coming in to talk with me. Thanks for having me.
It was great to listen to your talk yesterday. You said that you've been studying sustainable consumption for about 15 years. So I was curious why you initially decided to study that and why you stuck around. That's a good question. I uh, did my undergrad in natural resource conservation. And so it was, <clears throat> for the most part, it was much more of a science focus. I found the science really clear, right? We need to conserve resources. There are environmental crises. But then I found the social solutions a lot less clear. So because the program I was in was in the Faculty of Forestry, we would have summer jobs working for the forest industry. So either tree planting or in silviculture. And while, you know, the sort of pro-environmental rhetoric is like forestry is bad, industry is bad, spending the summer in these in these industry towns, it's a lot harder to make that moral judgment. You know, the people I worked with were really passionate about the environment. You know, there were guys that loved bird watching while they were out in the woods. And I could see the impact, the sort of economic benefits of the forest industry in these towns. So anyway, it just became a lot less clear to say industry's bad, <clears throat> development's bad. And I uh, had the opportunity to take an environmental sociology course out in New Brunswick at the end of my degree. It totally blew my mind and changed my perspective, seeing how um, <clears throat> we really need to understand a wide variety of people's relationships to the environment. And then that kind of started me down the road. And I've stuck with it because I think consumption's so tied to our everyday lives, right? You know, we all go through our lives consuming resources every day. <clears throat> and yet nobody really wakes up in the morning thinking, I'm going to burn a bunch of fossil fuels today, or I want to make sure I draw down the levels of the North Saskatchewan River today. And yet we do. So I think it's I've remained interested because there's just so many different dimensions and so many ways that you can take these questions. Mm -hmm. In talking about those different relationships with the environment, I'm curious if you fit into any of those. I mean, I live in Vancouver now, so it's the mecca of organic avocado toast. <clears throat> I really do try to reduce my own consumption. My family, we just got rid of our car recently. I feel guilty every time I got on a plane. But I'm also really conscious of the fact that compared to when I was a grad student here in Edmonton, my footprint is way bigger. I make more money. I'm invited to talks like this, so I fly more. I might try to buy local and organic food more, but I've got two young kids, so I just waste more food. You know, I'm, I'm, I fit in the organic avocado toast category, but I'm highly conscious and uncomfortably so that my lifestyle has a larger impact than it did when I was more of a frugal consumer. I have a bit of a hybrid identity, I suppose, because I've kind of grown up in the city and the country. Mm. And so there's a lot of the folks in my degree and, and myself and, and being kind of in an academic setting, there's a lot of that organic avocado toast kind of crowd. There's also like a bunch of people who, who live out in the country, a lot of my neighbors who really fit into that kind of conservative, love to be out in the woods kind of style of connecting to the environment and having a relationship with the environment. So I thought that was very interesting. So I'm wondering, for all these different folks, if you have the ability to call out to them to unite around a particular political agenda, mm -hmm. what might that be? I think that <clears throat> if there were one political agenda that would 
unite them, that would be fantastic. But my thinking right now, and but I don't know the answer to it, um, but my thinking right now is that it's more how we frame issues. So for those conservative people with that deep connection to nature, if you're talking about something like climate change, you don't even need to talk about low-lying island nations that are going to be inundated. Talk about that community right there. Talk about how wetlands are going to be impacted. Talk about how air quality is going to be affected as a result of wildfires and the effect that that's going to have on migrating bird populations. Connect it to something that they care about. With people like the frugal self-sufficiency types, again, don't worry about the moral rhetoric around climate change, but make great incentive programs for people to get solar PV on their homes and so more people can actually afford energy efficient appliances and all of these great technological solutions that we have that are right now just so expensive for a lot of households. So does that answer your question? Yeah, like you don't need a unifying political narrative to bring people together that diversity can be addressed with diverse narratives. Yeah, and that I think in a lot of the environmental issues one of the mistakes that we make is we assume that we're always talking to the organic avocado toast. Hmm. And so then when someone doesn't agree with that framing or that message or someone or someone's not convinced by it, we often tend to paint them as ignorant or even amoral. You know, when someone alludes to, like, suggests that I'm ignorant, that doesn't really invite me in and be like, oh, tell me more. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like almost an elitism to the sustainable, quote-unquote, sustainable consumption that the wealthy are able to practice. And so a lot of people who aren't able to do that feel ostracized by that. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the talk, I I somewhat simplified it to focus on wealth, but there's different types of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as an undergrad student, when I didn't have kids and I didn't have much income at the time, but, you know, I was confident that that was a short period of time. I I had time privilege. I know everybody mm. feels super busy in their undergrad, but it just gets more busy when you have kids and a full-time job. And so there's that time privilege as well. There's also just the fact that you're only making decisions for yourself. You don't have to balance those decisions with a partner or cater to kids' needs. Um, or, you know, if you think about people who are living here from other cultures, attending to two different cultural scripts about the right way to eat or the right way to transport yourself or what have you. So there's there's so many types of privilege and I think that that the environmental movement is really infused with a lot of privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and whiteness is I think another thing Absolutely. comes up a lot. Um, I'm curious, a lot of your research is also around gender and I'm wondering how environmental attitudes are gendered among some of the groups that you talked about? Yeah, you really hit a tough one for me because it's something that I'm constantly going back and forth on. So my foray into the gender world was partly because in the literature on environmental sociology, people are really attentive to how race and class structures or sort of shapes the way that different groups are impacted by environmental issues. But it's pretty, there's virtually nothing said about gender. Mm. And in the area of sustainable consumption, the literature tends to say there are these simple cost-saving ways that anybody can protect the environment. But when I look at 
those simple ways, they're typically things that women in a you know heterosexual two-parent household would be taking responsibility for. <clears throat> so things like greening your food habits, buying eco-friendly cleaners, uh, making more food from scratch. And so on the one hand, while it might seem more simple than passing international climate policy, it's not simple for the women who are taking on that work. So, so the reason I said I'm waffling is because my first impulse was like, this is such bull. Like we've, you know, women shouldn't be doing this work. It should be more equitable. But then I was talking to a friend of mine who makes her own yogurt and bread. And, and I was saying, you know, you shouldn't have to be doing this. Your partner should, should be helping you with this. And she's like, it's a, it's an honor for me. Like, I really love this. This is something mm. that I really value. So where I kind of came to a compromise at the end is thinking that we just have to stop talking about this as simple simple, easy solutions and instead be like, this is a really important dedication that a lot of people are doing in their lives and let's value that. And maybe stop gendering it when we talk about it so that more people can see themselves participating in those sorts of efforts to reduce their impact. Hmm. And this is a complicated question, but I'm really curious on your perspective as also a university professor because I started in engineering and now I'm an environmental studies degree. And it's very, it was very obvious when I was in engineering that the vast majority of the students identified as male. And now in the environmental studies degree, the vast amount of students identify as female. I'm wondering why you think there is such a high proportion of women in environmental studies and science degrees and conversely, why there are far more men in degrees associated with capitalism or resource exploitation like business and engineering? Oh, man, I could go on and on and on. Um, but so the first thing I'll say is I was thinking about this the other day because I was looking at um, my bookshelf and my husband really collects a lot of these sort of how we're going to change the world type of books. And I was like, this one's written by a white man and this one's written by a white man. And th like they all are. And it's not that he's just going out and finding those books. Like the pundits who tell us what the world should be like tend to be male and tend to be white. And, you know, we had this conversation where I was like, we're now living the, the effect of a hundred plus years of decisions made by those people. And I'm so skeptical that that is the, that that's the voice that's gonna take us forward. I think we need to have a little bit of space to, to hear from other voices. And so to get back to your question about degree choice, you know, maybe it means instead of turning to the economist expert or the engineering expert with a great technological solution, maybe turn to the environmental studies major or the you know, critical gender studies major or the native studies major and hear sort of from outside of that dominant voice of power how other people perceive the problems that we're facing and how they envision solutions to those problems. Mm -hmm. Wrapping back around a little bit, 
to thinking about your talk and sustainable consumption. Do you think that sometimes defining people as consumers might disempower them as citizens? Oh, absolutely. You know, I I once looked at the throne speech that Harper gave, and mm. I can't remember the year exactly, because when I was reading it, I was like, wait a second, he keeps talking about us as consumers. And it was this weird throne speech where he's like, Canadian consumers want better television. <laughs> and I was like, we do? Is that our, our, our key issue? But he kept referring to the Canadian consumer. And so I went back and read an earlier throne speech, I think from Paul Martin, and he's constantly talking about the Canadian citizen. And so I do think it's really troubling to think about us as consumers. And I think consumers first and foremost, mm -hmm. because if you think about a citizen, a citizen has rights, but a citizen also has responsibilities. As a citizen, you have to, to have the rights part of the contract, you also have to uphold the responsibilities part of the contract. Whereas the consumer archetype is more of a taker. It's more of like, what can you give me, you know? Mm. And I'll give you some money, and in exchange, you give me what I want. And in terms of building a collective society that can cooperate and work together and compromise, I don't think that the consumer model is the archetype that's going to get us there. So, you know, I was told to talk about sustainable consumption, which, you know, you also sort of have to talk about sustainable consumers. But I'm glad you asked that question because uh, I really do think thinking about us as citizens is a lot more empowering. Mm -hmm. For those people listening who feel like they're in that organic avocado toast kind of crowd, what do you think would be some of the most important things for them to do to actually or tangibly lessen their footprint or engage in some kind of way? So I wish I had a really easy, pithy answer for you. Reducing emissions at the scale that we have to isn't something that people can do on their own. And so Paul Hawken has this great line about how we need to make sustainability the default option. I just don't think it's a great solution to rely on to say, hey, people, you know, try to give up your car or take public transit once a week. We need public transit to be so easy, so fast, so reliable, so affordable, and driving to be such a pain and so expensive and so inconvenient that transit is the default option. Mm -hmm. Same thing with energy efficiency. You know, we need our building code to make all houses super insulated, not just for very wealthy households with that organic avocado toast orientation to be like, yeah, I want these 12 inches of insulation in my house. I guess if you'd asked me this question five years ago, I would have been like, don't do anything. Just challenge the man, like con contact your government and mm -hmm. get them to change. But I've really come to realize how those individual actions that we take, and I take them too, they give us this safe passage through this complicated, emotionally intense territory that is the uncertainty around climate change. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if eating a meatless meal once a week gives you that sense that you're doing your part at any level, that's great. Mm -hmm. I, it really is. I think, you know, sure, in a utopian world, people would also be holding their government to task and really engaged in the political process. But that's complicated too. You know, to what extent do we trust our governments? And to what extent can individuals overpower the large lobby groups that influence governments as well? 
are those moms who have multiple children <laughs> and, and a shortage of time. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder sometimes if the focus on like what you can do as an individual puts weight on people mm-hmm. that doesn't quite adequately take into consideration the distribution of what's actually causing the problem. Yeah. Perhaps and, yeah. and and puts like a weight on or an emotional weight on people that they don't really deserve to take on. Absolutely. And I think that the small part of one thing I was trying to achieve in this talk is to say if you are an organic avocado toast consumer, just take it easy on judging people who aren't. That was a real theme that came up in the interviews and you know My guess is, as an environmental studies major, you probably come up against this a lot. You know, like, people who eat meat are bad people, or people who drive SUVs are disgusting and morally reprehensible. And the point I was trying to make is that literally everyone I interviewed is trying to do something. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily what you would do or what I would do, but if we're blaming other individuals, at a certain point we're also letting the larger players off the hook. And, you know, I sort of picture us as this, like, ants in a maze eating one another while there's this, like, Mm. big anteater that's just going to reap the spoils when we're all done picking at each other. And so one of the people I interviewed whose comments really always stand out clearly in my mind was a woman who had had three kids, and she was a single mom, and she had a really low income, and she's like, would I love to bike to work? And grow my own food in my garden? Of course I would. Like every mom wants to model that for her kids and to give her kids those fresh vegetables. But how am I supposed to get a kid off to daycare and another kid to the nanny and another kid to school on my bicycle? And, you know, I'm working 10 hours. How am I supposed to come home and grow vegetables in my organic garden at the end of the day? And I know that some people are able to, and that's amazing. And she said it's really an ideal that she's aspiring to. But she said, if I just keep reminding myself of not living up to that, I'm just going to hate myself and be so conscious of what I'm not doing. And I just have to have some grace for myself and accept what I am doing and just be like, I'm getting through the day and I've got food on the table for my kids at the end of the day. And that's all I can do right now. And that judgment has such a tangible impact in the world. It does. Like I think about way that Trump came into power. And I, I think in large part, a lot of his voting base felt really alienated by those wealthy liberal elites. And it reminds me, I was driving to Calgary one day and I picked up somebody who was hitchhiking on the side of the highway and we started talking and he'd work in the lumber mill near Sundry for quite a while and he was asking me what I was studying and I told him I was an environmental studies degree (laughs) and he was like so does everybody hate you (laughs) I was like um not that I know of (laughs) not that I know of but I guess I live in a bubble and there's just I, I think that 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 divisiveness and that like judgment is really really more harmful Yeah, it is. And, you know, I lived in the States for four years. One of the things I was often struck by is how for the liberal elites, right, I lived in a college town, so it was like nothing but liberal elites. They couldn't see that argument at all. That argument that in some ways their viewpoint of looking down on people for not being more like them was part of the 
process that helped Trump get into power. And they couldn't see it. And they were like, anyone who's saying that is completely wrong and borderline crazy because we're giving the right answers. We're talking about how our country needs to be. And so if people don't see it that way, they're ignorant. I don't think that that's a productive way forward. Being able to recognize that if you grew up in another person's shoes, you probably would think the exact same way that they did. There, we're not individuals in that, you know, we come up with our own values and practices and beliefs on our own were very much the product of our social circumstances. And so the viewpoints that you and I hold would be very different if we had grown up, you know, the person you picked up hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. If we had grown up in his exact conditions, we probably would be exactly like him. And so being able to kind of recognize our common humanity or recognize what we have in common rather than expecting other people to have our impulses and our tastes and our values. It's like the only way that culturally we're going to move out of this kind of quagmire that we're in. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. That was Tara Informer Dylan Hall speaking with environmental sociology professor Emily Huddert Kennedy. Do you personally connect with what you heard? Do you feel like your style of environmentalism is left out of public narratives or out of this piece? Let us know. You can send us an email with any of your thoughts to tara at cjsr.com. Tara Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6, the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue to have multiple distinct relationships to these lands, waters, plants, and animals, and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understandings of this place. To hear more stories like the one that we shared today, visit our website at terrainforma.ca, find us on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, or follow us on Spotify. A big thank you to our contributors this week, Carter Gorzitza, Amanda Rooney, Elizabeth Dowdell, and Dylan Hall. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for tuning in.